Good morning, church. Um, I just want to share a, a matchstick moment as well. Um, at five past nine this morning, there were 12 people here helping with setup, song leaders. Um, a few people had got lifts to church, and it was just so great to see everybody get stuck in and helping out. So amen, right? Hopefully this is a new normal, getting back to the good things that we used to do. Uh, with lots of people serving and, and really being even early for church, just to not just serve but to fellowship, which was awesome. Great. So, I am going to go through some announcements. I'm doing it now because it's going to be recorded uh, for the benefit of those who are not here. Okay, so I'm kind of doing it just before the lesson. If I can have the remote, please, with the. There we go. Okay. So, um, some of these announcements are repeat announcements. I'm going to go through quickly. Uh, the name in the hat, there is a silver hat there next to the black box. And not everybody has drawn a partner yet for, um, for hosting. So, on your way out, please do that. You'll see there are five or six names there still. All right. Um, the church camp, remember, uh, 7th and 8th of May. Please schedule that, book that. If you have any queries at all, please speak to Vilma. Then, EHS... Uh, starts this coming Sunday. Um, please let us know if you need any of the A4 printed booklets. Um, I have one somewhere. I think it's at the back. Okay, on the way out, you can have a look at it. I am going to anticipate approximately how many we need so that next Sunday there will be some here. Price is 110 Rand, but if you can't afford to pay that, just let us know. A plan will be made. You can also get the Kindle and, and, and the hard copy book. Then another church social in the hall on the 27th of March. I'm sure Vilma and her uh, social team will, um, will share that. Some of you are looking concerned at the picture. I'm sure it'll be fun. <laughs> Won't be hectic. It's going to be good fun. And then uh, there's a ladies' pizza night on the 30th of March. I'm sure the details will be shared um, on, the, um, on, um, on the women's group. Okay, then a, a really, Im they're all important announcements, but from next week, our church service is going to change. We're going to start 30 minutes earlier. Okay, the, the church leader spoke about this. Uh, just to be more in line with other churches doing town. In fact, this is still a, a relatively late start for a Sunday morning church service. We want to free up the day. Um, our church services are, are you know, on, on the long side. Their meetings after church. We want you to fellowship, have small group discussions during the EHS. But until the foreseeable future will start at 9.30. This is the time we used to start before COVID. For many, many years, our church started at 9.30. Amen. So we're going back to 9.30. Guys excited about that? Good stuff. Amen. Right. So everyone's going to have to just get up a little bit earlier, but still a lot later than you do during the week, I'm sure. Great. So let's get on with it. In Luke 19, verse 10, we read, you know, Jesus said this. We read that the Son of Man, referring to Jesus himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Seeking and saving the lost is at the heart of the mission of Jesus. And therefore, this is at the heart of our mission as followers of Jesus. We are called to seek and to save the lost, just as Jesus did. And in recent weeks, we've been learning how Connecting is so central to the life of discipleship. Connecting with God, connecting with one another in God's family, connecting with our mission to the poor. Okay, the great lesson Paul gave last Sunday. 
And today we're going to be speaking about connecting with the lost. And as we will see today, um, seeking and saving the lost involves connecting with them. Connecting with people who are not saved, connecting with them deeply. But let me start with explaining what the Bible means by the state of being lost. You know, I, I occasionally, just occasionally, lose my keys or my cell phone. Any of you relate to that? And more than a okay, And I then would say, oh, I've lost my keys or I've lost my cell phone. Can somebody find them for me, please? And that's how we typically understand this concept of lost. But in the Bible, there's a lot more to being lost than just I can't find it for a while. Okay. Um, you know, in the Bible, the word lost describes the state of being separated from God, being trapped in the kingdom of darkness, being under the control of Satan, being blind, being outside of God's family. It's also associated with perishing or even being dead. So in Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul speaking to the Christians, maybe speaking to Christians here, he reminds them, he says, that once they were dead in their transgressions. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then from verse 4, he writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, this is a picture. This, this is language of being lost and being saved. The lost are dead in their sins, but in Christ the dead are raised to new life. The spiritually dead are raised to new life just as Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, Bob Harrington, you probably haven't heard the name, I hadn't, um, but he was quite a well-known evangelical preacher in the States, he lived to the age of about 90, he died about five years ago. He was quite a character and he was quite known in, in America. He once said that he had two fears. He said the one is to be buried but not dead, and the other is to be dead but not buried. Now, I, I watched a movie once, and it freaked me out, man. It was, I can't remember the details, but, but a person in the movie ended up apparently dying. Um, there was a funeral at short notice, and the person was placed in a coffin into the ground, six foot below the ground. And as they started throwing sand on the coffin, the, the camera sort of moved into, into the coffin, and the person woke up. She actually wasn't dead. They just couldn't pick up you know, signs of life. She was in a deep coma. Now, I don't know about you, but that's about the greatest fear that I can, that I can have. You know, as I've got older, I've, um, I've developed a fear of heights, and I've developed, I think, a fear of being stuck in small places, claustrophobia. So if you don't like me, you can do two things. You can take me to the top of a cliff and leave me there alone, or you can lock me in a cupboard. Okay. Um. <laughs> you know, that was one of the fears that, that this Bob um, Harrington shared, you know, to be buried but not dead. But then he said his other fear was to be dead but not buried. You see, Bob Harrington led, let's say, a colorful life as an evangelical. Um, after a while, he, um, he got into sin uh, with some woman in the church even. He divorced his wife. He lost, he lost everything. 
And he was really in the wilderness. He was lost in his own words. He said he was dead, but not buried. And he was restored. Amen? Um, and, you know, many people are dead, but not buried, biblically speaking. People who are lost, who are separated from God, are the walking dead. That's a zombie movie, isn't it? I hate zombie movies as well. Okay, so if any of you invite me to a movie at your house and you play a zombie movie, I'm out of there. Okay. Right, that's just another interesting fact about me. Okay, I don't watch zombie movies. But people who are lost, who are separated from God, are like the walking dead. they dead but not yet buried. You get it? So Jesus came to, to seek and to save people like that, the walking dead. And many people in the world look very much alive, don't they? They're incredibly successful. They'll be busy. They've got amazing careers. They can even have wonderful families and great networks. They can be involved in all sorts of projects, and they look very much alive. But unless they're in Christ, the Bible says they're dead. Okay? They're dead, but not yet buried underground. So today I'm going to speak about how Jesus went about seeking and saving the lost. I hope that, you know, the series on Connect, um, I hope you've experienced it as it been very practical. You know, we're not going through deep theology here. I, I think all of you understand these concepts and the importance of, of connecting with God and one another and the poor and the lost. We're trying to be practical. So today I'm going to look at the example of Jesus. And I'm going to draw out five lessons that I think are universal principles for us to apply. How, how to go about seeking and saving the lost. But let's start in that passage in Luke 19, you know, verse 10, where Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. We're going to look at the context um, of that. Okay, so please turn in your Bibles. It's a well-known story of Zacchaeus. I'm using this translation of N.T. Wright, the Kingdom New Testament, which is a great translation. It's a contemporary translation, very similar to the NLT. Okay, just in case you, you thought this was a bit different. Okay, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 10. Well-known story about Zacchaeus. They went into Jericho and passed through. There was a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector who was very rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a small man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran on ahead along the route Jesus was going to take and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Zacchaeus, he said to him, hurry up and come down. I have to stay at your house today. So he hurried up, came down, and welcomed him with joy. Everybody began to murmur when they saw it. He's gone in to spend time with a proper old sinner, they were saying. But Zacchaeus stood there and addressed the master. Look, master, he said, I'm giving half my property to the poor. And if I have def defrauded anyone of anything, I'm giving it back to them four times over. Today, said Jesus, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. You see, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is in, is in Jericho, attracting a crowd as he usually did. And one man who really wanted to see and hear Jesus was stuck at the back. Short man, Zacchaeus, he climbed a sycamore tree so that he could see and listen to Jesus. We're told that he was a chief tax collector. Now, tax collectors were, were hated. I don't think that's too strong a word. They certainly weren't liked by their fellow Jews. 
Because the tax collectors would collect the tax from their fellow Jews and pass it on to the Roman Empire, and they would take a cut along the way. Okay? And if you were a chief tax collector, you had a number of tax collectors working under you. And you took a cut as well before it went to Rome, before you handed it over to Rome. Okay, so they say that Zacchaeus was, was a rich man. He was a very rich man, but he was also despised you know, by the crowd who would have been there, the Jews. Now, the tax collectors were considered such bad sinners that you would not enter their house. And you would not have them come into your house. Because, you know, the sin was so bad that you would have to decontaminate. You would have to purify yourself and your entire house um, if you had them over. And you certainly wouldn't go into a house of a tax collector. So when Jesus said, I must stay at your home, it was shocking to the people. You know, but Jesus, you know, obviously went into the home. He spent time with um, Zacchaeus. They would have had table fellowship. That detail is missing here. But whatever that interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus was like, it resulted in Zacchaeus repenting. This is actually a great example of, of repentance, because repentance isn't just that I change the way I think. Repentance is fundamentally changing the way you live. And it is, it is to put things right that you have caused to be wrong. And he, he refunded the people who he had stolen money from. Okay, so this is a picture of true repentance. And then Jesus says to him, he said, you are son of Abraham. Now this is family language. You see, Abraham represented God's family. So when Jesus says, you are a son of Abraham, he's welcoming him into the family. Okay? But, you know, what, what do we learn from this interaction and another story I'm going to tell um, in a moment? Um, firstly, Jesus did not categorize people. And this was really such an important point for me to be reminded of as, as, as I studied this out. Now, to explain my point, let me tell you a story. Um, a church had a, an inner city ministry in the States. I don't know the, the, you know the name. That's, that's not important. But every evening, they, they walked the streets of the inner city between 10 o'clock at night and 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, just greeting people, meeting people, talking, um, speaking to homeless people. Um, they would have seen all sorts of people on the streets. I'm sure you would um, agree with that. Now, one evening, the ministry leader, the leader of this um, inner city ministry, took a small group of, of young Christians, people who wanted to be part of this ministry, took them out at 10 o'clock, and they were walking around, and they, they passed a, a lady who, let's say, was scantily and provocatively dressed. Okay? And one of the young Christians sort of walked next to the ministry leader and whispered in his ear, and he said, is she a prostitute? And the ministry leader took a deep breath. He paused. He didn't want to appear too irritated. And he said, no, she is not a prostitute. She is a human being who is currently trapped in prostitution. See the difference? You know, that man who asked the question would write a book later. And he shares the story in the book. And he shares how quick he was to categorize and how convenient it was because he didn't need to see this person as a person, as a human being. When we categorize people, we, we actually dehumanize them. And it's a convenient way of putting people in boxes, 
becoming things and objects rather than human beings to interact with. The Jews in the time of Jesus categorized people very quickly. Zacchaeus was a sinful tax collector. To Jesus, he was a man who needed to be saved. He was a human being, created in the image of God, but fallen because of sin. That's a lesson we can learn from from Jesus, surely. You know, studies show that the average person, this is scary, sizes up and makes a value judgment about other people within five seconds of meeting them. Next time you meet a stranger, remember that and see, just check your thoughts. What's the initial assumption you're making about, am I right? You know, I think, I've I've done this. Now you see a person, depending on how they dress, depending on how they speak, depending on their body language and the car they drive, suddenly we're starting to form subconsciously these pictures. We start categorizing them. You know, that prevents us seeking and saving the lost the way Jesus did. You know, we'd say, he's a corrupt politician. He's an alcoholic. She's an adulterer. He's an arrogant old white guy. She is such a self-centered Gen Z. These are things we can think. And that doesn't open the door for relationship and connection and getting to know the people as, as human beings. You know, Lord, forgive me for so easily making value judgments about people and putting them in convenient categories. Jesus didn't. You know, to the crowd in Jericho that day, as I said, Zacchaeus was a sinful tax collector, but to Jesus, he was a human being in need of salvation. He was walking dead. You needed to be alive in him. You know, we read another example in Luke 7. This is where Jesus was invited to the home of Simon, a Pharisee. I remember the story. Jesus accepted the invitation. He was uh, lounging with the, with the Pharisee. Yeah, Jesus is reaching out you know, into the home of a a Pharisee, having fellowship with him, having table fellowship. And a woman who we read led a sinful life came and wept at Jesus' feet. And she washed his feet with her tears and then anointed his feet with perfume. And Simon was indignant and he was thinking to himself, and this is the value judgment. Okay, he's thinking. Is this fellow really a prophet, thinking about Jesus? He'd know that if he was a true prophet, he would know that this woman was a sinner and wouldn't let her touch him. You see the quick judgment? What he didn't know was that Jesus knew what he was thinking. Um, let's, let's read that passage. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 7. I'll continue reading. Let's let the Scriptures speak here, right? Okay, I'll, I'll read from verse 40. Verse 40, Simon replied, Jesus, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, he replied. Once upon a time, there was a money lender who had two debtors. The first owed him 500 denario, the second a tenth of that. Neither of them could pay him, and he let them both off. So which of them will love him more? The one he let off the more, I suppose, replied Simon. Quite right, said Jesus. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? When I came into your house, you didn't give me water to wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You didn't give me a kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet from the moment I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So the conclusion I draw is this. She must have been forgiven many sins. Her great love proves it. But if someone has been forgiven only a little, they will love only a little. Then he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Who is this? The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who even forgives sins. Your faith has saved you, said Jesus to the woman. Go in peace. You, t- you see to Simon and the other guests there, this woman was just a sinner. They conveniently categorized her as a sinner. But through the story that Jesus tells, he explains that, yes, she has sinned much, but she has much to be forgiven of. And she has, she has much to be grateful for. And she showed her gratitude. And she loved Jesus much, which she showed through her actions. She showed godly sorrow. She, she repented. She demonstrated her love for Jesus. And so he forgave her. You know, in Luke 19, the crowd conveniently categorized Zacchaeus as a tax collector and therefore a sinner. But Jesus saw Zacchaeus as a human being who was working as a tax collector in need of salvation. In Luke 7, Simon categorized the woman who washed Jesus' feet as a sinner who should not have been allowed to touch Jesus. But Jesus saw a human being who had sinned much and repented much and who loved Jesus much, and he forgave her. You know, do you categorize people and so write them off? Or do you see every person, included, including the biggest sinner of all, as a human being who has fallen and who is in need of God's salvation? So the first lesson that we learn from the example of Jesus, just how he went about to seek and save the lost, is to not categorize people, not to label people. Secondly, Jesus fellowshiped with people, for lack of a better word. He, he communed with them. He, he hung out with them. He went into their place. Uh, and you know, Jesus met and spoke with people all over the place. He spoke with crowds. Uh, he spoke with people one-on-one. He spoke with people in small groups. You know, but if you remember the story of, of Zacchaeus, what Jesus did not do was to speak to Zacchaeus on the street amongst the crowds. He went into his house. He fellowshiped with him. He had table fellowship. He communed. He connected. He connected with Zacchaeus in a place where Zacchaeus was, was comfortable, you know, in, in his home. Jesus ate and drank with sinners, we read. He did it to connect with them often one-on-one, to empathize with them, to listen to their stories, you know, but also to speak the truth to them in love, to bring them to the point of, of repentance and salvation. He met them where they were. You know, we often say that. He met people at the place they were. But Jesus was never happy leaving them in that place if they were lost, if they were dead in their transgressions. He would connect them, and then he would help to move them Okay, from death to life. Amen. Jesus did things for a purpose. You know, so how do we connect with people who are lost? 
You know, do we easily categorize people? I know I've done this just recently. I, I met a guy, and he has sounded so on top of things. He's got a successful career. He's such a capable guy. And I tried to raise the topic of Christianity, and he pretty much brushed it off. And then I would categorize him as someone who is closed. You ever done that? Oh, he's closed to the gospel. I've got his number, and I'll keep in touch with him. I'll talk about the products that he's distributing, which I am. But I haven't shared my faith with him because in my mind he's closed. Thank goodness Jesus didn't have that attitude, right? I mean, a lot of people he meant were closed to the gospel. That didn't hold Jesus back. So don't categorize people. And secondly, let us connect with people where they are at. And physically meeting with people is so important. You know, the people, are you reaching out to people and inviting them into your home? Are you picking them up from their, you know, their, their place and offering, if they let you, just look around and see if there's anything they need help with in their home? Things like that. Just to connect with people in homes and in their homes, if they have a home, is, is really important. That's what Jesus did in restaurants. At parties, you know, see them, use these opportunities to connect with people. And if they are lost, then to help them become saved. Okay, so my third point is Jesus called people to repentance. And I've kind of mentioned this to some extent. You know, Jesus called people to repent in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We read that, for example, in Matthew 4, verse 17. And as you know, if we look at the example of Zacchaeus, just to remind you that repentance is not just a new way of thinking. It involves changing our lifestyle, living according to a new set of values. And making reparations and asking for forgiveness for, for, you know, for hurt that we have caused. You know, there's a story of a man who, who did not repent in the Bible, the rich young man. Once again, it's a story that many of you might know. We read about that in Matthew 19. And this young man comes up to Jesus and asks him, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, you know, you need to keep the commandments. And he goes through some of them, you know. And then this guy replies, he says, I have kept all of them. Now Jesus then answered, if you want to be perfect, in other words, if you want to be complete, if you want a complete set, according to N.T. Wright, then... Go and sell everything you own and give it to the poor. You then will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And then we read that this young man went away very sad because he had many possessions. You see, Jesus knew this man as religious as he was. He knew that this man put his hope and security in his wealth. And when he was challenged to, to shift the source of his hope and his security and his allegiance away from you know, his wealth and his property and his family and everything that was caught up in that, when he called him to shift that to himself, to Jesus, this man was unable to do it. He did not. He did not repent. You know, sometimes people will respond to the gospel and what it requires to be saved. Sometimes they won't. But the fact is that even when we meet people who resist the good news, who resist you know, Jesus' call you know, to take them out of the, the kingdom of darkness into the, his kingdom of light, even when they resist that, we must resist the temptation to water down the gospel. 
the gospel is the gospel. You know, we cannot place our hope in wealth or in anything else. For people to become followers of Jesus, right, to go from the walking dead to the living, they need to repent. We need to continually repent as well. We need to shift our hope and our security from whatever it is that, that we hold on to and it gets between us and a, and a complete trust in Jesus. We need to, we need to, people need to give that up and shift that trust and allegiance to Jesus. That is the core of seeking and saving the lost. You know, Jesus, he also instructed his disciples, he warned them. He said, you know what, some people won't accept the gospel. That's fine. Leave them and move on. Sometimes most people just don't accept the gospel and the opportunity and the chance that Jesus is giving them. So Jesus called people to repent because he wanted them to be saved. It upset many people back then and it will upset many people today. It does. But it's a necessary call to make as we seek and save the lost. Come our fourth point. Jesus saved people into God's family. And this is important, and sometimes I think we can't speak too much about this, but in the, in the modern culture, and I believe it's Western and Eastern culture now, is that there's such a focus on individualism. Obviously it, it varies, but in general that's just the, the, the nature of the world and the culture of the times. And in you know, the broader Christian movement, um, and in the world, people desire a personal relationship with God. But nowhere in the Bible are, are those, is that term used. Nowhere in the Bible do we read about being saved into a personal relationship with God. Salvation is always into a community. Don't get me wrong. We obviously need to you know, spend our one-on-one -on -one time with God. We need to have our dates with God, our coffee dates. We need, should have our quiet times. We should love being with God. But we are called and we are saved into a community. Amen? You guys, you guys know this. But I just want to make the point when Zacchaeus repented and was saved, and I'll make the point again, Jesus explained to the people that this man is a son of Abraham. They said, no, how can sinners be part of God's family? Jesus, because he's repented and I have saved him. He is part of the family. Being lost is being outside of God's family. Being saved is being drawn into the family. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, we read that Jesus speaking to a church, to Christians, he reminds them that we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. Baptism is, is a community-creating event. We are not baptized into a purely individual, personal relationship with God. We're baptized into a, into a community. And I think that's an important part of seeking and saving the lost. And it, it, it is a barrier to many people I've experienced, just really embracing and experiencing God's family. For various reasons, people might have been hurt, but we cannot seek and save the lost unless we speak about God's family. Not only speak about God's family, but embody God's family, to demonstrate God's family, to be the community that, that we are in Christ, really to live out that, that reality. That was the fourth point. Jesus saved people into a family. I just want to mention one more thing there. This close, loving community that, that Jesus has set up it is our greatest witness. Now, when I reach out to people, I still, I still encourage them to experience us. It's a guy I'm standing out with at the moment. We've got together a few times, goes to a traditional church, and I'm really encouraging him, encouraging him to experience us. 
You'll ask questions about, you know, what's your church like? And I say, man, I can speak for hours. But it's not going to do justice to it. To know our church, you need to experience us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> but experience us. And I, and I typically give guys a three-month challenge. Man, no, no expectations. Just spend three months with us. Join the men at our breakaway. A few of them have done this. Come to, come to as many church services as you can. Hang out with us. Get to know us. I can't verbally explain this community. Can you? you? You can't just speak about relationship. You need to experience it. Okay, so the family that people are saved into is our greatest witness. It will either attract people to God or it will chase them away. Now, a lot of people can run away for all the wrong reasons. Maybe they, they see this, this weirdness, this closeness, this love. that They think, well, this isn't for me. I can relate to that. You know, I fought against that for years. Okay? But you know what? Eventually, the hard hearts are worn down and softened. And I compared what I had in the kingdom of darkness compared to what I experienced in this church. And my heart softened. Thank, thank the Lord. Okay, so we are saved into a community, into a family, and, and we need to embody and demonstrate that family. Live it out. Practically show people who we want to seek and to save. You know, that this is what you're going to be saved into. Isn't it, isn't it awesome? It's challenging, it's different, but it's awesome. My fifth point, Jesus loved people deeply. Kind of obvious, but let's, let me make the point, right? Jesus loved people deeply. And even the words don't do justice to the point. You know, as we read with how Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus and the, you know, the woman who lived in sin who washed and anointed his feet, as we read the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and even the story of Jesus and the rich young man, if you really understand the heart of, of Christ, um, we see the compassion of Jesus. And compassion is certainly part of, of, of love. You know, this deep compassion of, of Jesus. Now, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, going to the cross, there's a path down the hill, and at, at the top of the hill, that's where he probably stopped. He looked over Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept. He wept because he realized that the vast majority of people living down there would reject him. The vast majority of people would stay lost. They, the vast majority of people would be dead in their transgressions. They would reject his message of life and of hope. And it troubled Jesus deeply. It brought him to tears. He wept. Now, when last did you weep? Or if you're not a guy who cries or a person who cries, but when last did you feel great sorrow, you know, for the population of our city? When last did we weep for the lost? That's, that's part of, of the love of Jesus, this deep compassion that he felt for people. And the love of the love of God and the love of Jesus are, of course, the same thing. And the most vivid picture that we have in the teachings of Jesus about the extent of God's love is the parable of the prodigal son. And I know Nolene taught on this awesome lesson earlier on in the year. Now we read about that in Luke chapter 15. I just want to read a section of that. You guys in Luke, if you can please turn to Luke 15. Kind of convenient when all of my scriptures are in Luke Hey, Sibu, you can kind of find the passages easy. <laughs> Luke 
Okay, so let me um, just quickly paraphrase and create the context here. So there's this, there's this father who has two sons, a father with some means, and one of the sons, the young son, comes up to the dad and says, hey dad, um, I'd like my inheritance. Now, we think, oh, that's kind of a strange thing. You know, I've actually thought sometimes of leaving my children some money before I die because it takes a year and a half to sort out estates nowadays. But, but that's not the motivation here. This guy was effectively, in that culture, it was disrespectful. It was embarrassing. It was, in fact, saying to his father, how his father would have heard that, Dad, I wish you were dead already. You're just living too long. You know, this inheritance is taking too long to come to me. And the father separated, divided the inheritance in two. He gave the young son something, he gave the older son something. Can you imagine a father doing that in that culture? You can imagine the shame that it brought on the family. You can imagine the other villagers saying to the dad, what are you doing? You know, this is not the way we do things. How can you, how can you give in to your son's demands? And the young son went away, he lived it up, he squandered all of his wealth. He ended up working for a Gentile and working with pigs. Okay, we know how bad that was in the Jewish culture. So this guy did everything wrong. He's about as lost as you can imagine. This guy's dead in his transgressions. Not acting like family, not respecting his father. Breaking a whole bunch of commandments. This guy is lost. And then he comes to his senses, we read. And he, he pictures, he's now down and out. He's got nothing. He's even tempted to eat the food that the pigs are eating. So God has humbled him completely. And then he decides, he pictures in his mind going back home. And he kind of, I think, plays through all the scenarios. And he decides, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my dad and say, you know, dad, I understand I cannot be your son. I've blown it. But please hire me as one of your laborers. That's, that is repentance, right? He, he, he repented and, and he came to his father and he started speaking to his dad like that. But then, let's take up the reading, where am I? I've got to figure out where, I, where my story is ending. Let's end in the scriptures, let the Bible speak again. Okay, so while he was a long way off, his father saw him and his heart was stirred with love and pity. Heart of God, right? And the father in the parable is God. Maybe even Jesus, but either way it's God. So his heart was filled with love and pity. He ran to him, hugged him tight and kissed him. Father, the son began, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. But the father said to his servants, hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the calf that we've fattened up, kill it, and let's eat and have a party. The son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. And now he is found. And they began to celebrate. You see that this is a picture of seeking and saving the lost. My son was dead. He's lost. But now he's been found. He is saved. He is no longer walking dead. He's no longer dead but not buried. Okay. This is about as bad as it gets. You agree? This, I can't imagine a person being more lost than this. You know, but he, he realized his sin, he confessed it, he asked for forgiveness, he repented, he was willing to do anything. This is a great picture again, like Zacchaeus, of true repentance. 
Did God, the father in the story, hesitate at all? No, he embraced him. You know, welcome back to the family. Here's the family ring. Let's have a party. My point is that this is the love of God. And Jesus modeled his ministry on this kind of love. He tells the parable because he was speaking about himself. He was speaking about the Jews who had rejected him. The Jews and the Gentiles who would follow him. And that everybody would be welcomed back by him into his family. So Jesus, this is the model that Jesus took for his own ministry of seeking and saving the lost. And as disciples of Jesus, this is the model we must take. This is the model of of the kind of love that we should extend to people around us. We we are the prodigal son and daughter. You guys realize that? We are the prodigal son and daughter as well. And the love, the mercy and grace and love that Jesus has shown to us, as his disciples, we pay that forward. We love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us. By this, people will know that we are his disciples, Jesus says in John 13. Okay, so... Jesus loved people into the kingdom, and we are to love people into the kingdom with Jesus' love. You know, just in conclusion, I spoke about, um, you know, Bob Harrington up front, the guy who feared two things. He also debated with atheists and other religions about the existence of the Christian creator God. And On one TV show, he debated with an atheist, a woman named Madeleine Murray O'Hare, Irish woman. And and I'm not at all trying to say this in a bad way, but or a good way. Atheists are typically very intelligent people, deep thinkers. They memorize facts. And if ever you try to debate with an atheist, make sure you know the Bible, because often they know the scriptures better than we do. Um, Anyway, so after this. Um, debate, this televised debate, somebody came up to this pastor, Harrington, and said, O'Hare seemed to know the scriptures better than you did. And he answered, that might very well be so, but I know the author. I know the author. And I think this is just such a lovely way to pull together what we have been speaking about. You know, fulfilling our mission to connect starts with connecting deeply with God, knowing God as the author. And as we do that, it will result in us connecting deeply with one another in God's family. It will result in us when we, when we know the author deeply. It will result in us connecting deeply with the poor and vulnerable. And it will result in us connecting as Jesus wants us to connect in the Jesus model with, with the lost. You know, Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost. That is now the mission of his church. And we are to carry out the mission as he did. Just to remind you, and I am going to put this up, because sometimes seeing it you know, helps us to remember. Um, you know, five lessons from how Jesus did it. And, you know, this is not the be-all and end-all. There can be a whole bunch of other points I could have made. But if we start with this, it'll make a difference, won't it? If we just start with this, 
we will be like Jesus, a lot more like Jesus in seeking and saving the lost. What did Jesus do? He didn't categorize and thereby dehumanize people. He treated everybody as human beings caught up in sin, fair enough, if they are lost, but someone in need of salvation, human beings. He fellowshiped, he communed with the lost in their homes. Jesus was honest and he called people to repentance to be saved. You know, Jesus made it clear that people would be saved into his family. That culture understood it better than we do. And to live then as a close, connected, loving community. He loved people into God's family. And that's what we need to do as well. And we need to love people with the love of Jesus. Amen. So this is a pretty good start. As I say, it's not the the be-all and end-all. But my, my challenge for us, my charge for us is... Ask yourself this question. What is holding you back from seeking and saving the lost? I don't know all of you, but I do know, and I can say this quite confidently, that very few of you and people who are not here are active in this mission given to us by Jesus. Right? So what is holding you back from seeking and saving the lost? And secondly... Taken from this lesson, what's the one thing that you can change to help you imitate Jesus in how he went about seeking and saving the lost? How he brought back to life those who were dead in their transgressions. Amen. Thank you, church.